been a while since I posted the last episode of the Drinkable Globe podcast, but I've been fucking busy, and better late than never. Uh, this is episode 17. Well, what have I been up to? Well, I've been on a bit of a book tour for my new book, Sockipedia. I've been on the East and the West Coast, just bouncing back and forth on that. And the book is now available. You can get it everywhere books are sold. Please buy it. It's not expensive, and you will love it, I promise. And another thing I've been involved in, I've got a new full-time gig. I'm going to be launching a new digital magazine with the American Craft Spirits Association. Stay tuned for that. I believe we should be launching sometime by the end of June. I did a bit of a Q&A, and I recorded that for a podcast, and then it'll be coming up on a future episode. But on this episode, uh, it's all about gin, Hendrix gin in particular. I speak to the Hendrix brand ambassador, Mattias Horseman. We caught up about six weeks ago at the San Antonio Cocktail Conference. And don't worry, it's not dated. This is all very evergreen stuff. You'll love it. Just listen. <laughs> I will teach you a little toast that we're doing. If you please hold the cocktail in your right hand, please. Now, we're going to just put pinkies together. We're going to use this as leverage and a connection point for our energies. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to bring them together to our glasses while we look at each other. Cheeky little wink and a toast. How long have you been with Hendrix? Going on, uh, ooh, going, going on three years. Three years, okay. Well, just uh, probably like just over two, I guess. Yeah. And, and uh, so what, what's your background? You're a bartender? You're yep, came from bartending. And, uh, are we recording? Sorry, we, should we go into depth of this? Or I don't well, know if I'm, just I'm, this is more, yeah, I'm, I just just get, I'm getting this for my own, but you know, yeah, great. I generally, you, you don't have to be, I, I generally just kind of glide into the interviews that's when probably, people yeah. are sort of unsuspecting, so I, so everyone's a little more natural. No, and that's so great. Much I, love, like, I love interview. I just, so much fun. So, please, let's so tell me, so, you know, where are you from originally and, um, you know, how, how you ended up with Hendrix and that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, um, I grew up in Bournemouth on the south coast of the UK. Mm -hmm. So sort of dead center of the country, right on the coast. And beautiful place to grow up, truly was. What was um, it, you said it was Bournemouth? Bournemouth, Bournemouth, yeah. So I used to just explore the beaches and the little cliff top and run around and climb trees and stuff. It was a great childhood. Um, but then uh, I moved, actually, I moved to Switzerland for um, sort of the finishing part of my high school career, which was uh, really fun. So I lived over in Lausanne, the Swiss Alps, for a while. Um, which was a, a really, really wonderful time. And then went to the University of Chester, and that's sort of where I developed my love for um, not only bartending, but hospitality and sort of the larger industry as a whole. So I studied psychology, and I actually was this close to quitting. I was so close. I was like, I hated the degree, and I was like, if I was going to, you know, if I heard one more thing about Piaget's theories of development, <laughs> I was going to like, Ugh. And uh, I spoke to one of my lecturers who was a good friend of mine, and I, a couple of them actually, and I was like, oh my God. And I was like, Michelle, Mandy, what am I going to do? Yeah, like, I'm, I'm so over this. It's not really my thing. And they said to me, like, just find the connection to your life and the degree. And they said, that's what everybody's looking for. Mm. And then you might be happy. And I'm like, okay. And I was putting myself through university by bartending outside. So I was at work one night, and I suddenly realized I was a psychologist behind the bar. And oh, yeah, every, of I literally woke up <laughs> I woke up and uh, in the middle of the night after I got home from the shift that night pro largely probably because I was having like work-based anxiety nightmares but also because I had this beautiful like uh, culmination of my career and a passion 
came colliding together. It's such a beautiful moment. I mean, you guys can put therapists out of business. I mean, that's yeah, the cheapest, the most accessible, yeah. like accessible um, you know, sort of uh, people that you can go talk to in the world. Mm. You know, it costs you five bucks and you get about a minute of time, so it's easy. Um, but I think it's funny that I, I focused so much on the positive. I did a lot of research into the hospitality industry when I was doing my dissertations, mm. and there was a lot of focus on the negative. You know, the, the drinking culture and all of the addictions and things that can come along with things. I guess if from the f superficial way of looking at it. But when you look at it in terms of more of an in-depth role and how I was trying to focus on a positive thing, my first dissertation was called On the Rocks with a Twist on Mental Health. And it was a multidimensional analysis of a bartender's role, which I thought was fascinating. So I interviewed bartenders across all of the UK. And then I went to, uh, I did my second dissertation, which was called uh, Make It a Double. And it was a comprehensive analysis of stress in frontline hospitality workers. So I actually used those and implemented some of the frameworks I developed from those dissertations and implemented them in the bars I've worked in, which is great. Then uh, I moved over to the US um, in 2013. And where in the US are you? Um, so when I first moved over, well, currently, actually, I just moved to Austin, Texas. Austin, okay. Yeah, I just moved there uh, a couple months ago. So I'm really looking forward to my first full year being a little Texas tumbleweed rolling around. So I guess when I first moved to the States, I moved to Aspen, Colorado. Mm -hmm. And then I lived in Chicago when I moved for the job with Hendrix. And then, uh, and then I just moved to Austin. I'm still in, in my same role, actually, if not a little more expanded, which is always fun. Um, and, you know... I moved over for family reasons and I sort of have always followed family. That's always been my goal. You know, I didn't know what I wanted to do as a kid. So I just thought, well, I know I want a family one day. So I moved over for my cousin and then I created a family uh, aspect of the bartending in Aspen. I created a company called the Cocktail Brothers and sort of had a mountain mixology, which was a wonderful experience bringing people together to make cocktails and sort of learn from each other. And that was really fun. And sure enough, that led me on to a family-owned company, William Grant and Sons. Mm. And so when they came calling, and they said, you know, you really, we want you to apply for this for this role. Um, you know, one of my dear friends who worked for them was like, you'd be perfect for the Hendrix ambassador role. And I was like, wow, you know, thought about it, and I was just like, absolutely, that's like literally my dream. And so I applied, and you know, a couple months later, voila, there it was. So that's what led me to Hendrix. I like to think of Hendrix as sort of the godfather or the elder statesman of the gin renaissance. Mm -hmm. I mean, it really, when Hendrix came on the scene, I think it turned gin on its ear. It made people realize that gin can be so much more than what people were used to. So, um, you know, so what are your feelings on where gin is now, the role that Hendrix played in that, and what Hendrix is really doing now to kind of uh, play in this space when there are so many new entrants. Absolutely. I think you're completely right in saying that Hendrix is a trailblazer for the modern gin movement, which is great. Um, however, I, I like to think of gin sort of as the masterpiece is created by the master distillers. So when you're talking about who's the trailblazer, I think you really have to look back at Leslie Gracie, who's our master distiller. Mm. She is absolutely one of the most fascinating and fantastic people you'll ever have the pleasure of meeting one day. Um, and she was the genius behind Hendrix. And she broke the glass ceiling uh, when it came to gin distilling and creating this the rounded flavor that Hendrix is. She likes to think of flavors in terms of shapes. So, you know, by creating the symphony of 11 botanicals with the soloists of rose and cucumber, it creates a gorgeous round flavor that she thinks helps people just go on a little bit of a journey with the flavor of it. And from um, 
that initial journey into the new distilled gin category back in 2000, like 1999, 2000, you can see the exponential growth of the gin category, not only here in, you know, I think it's more of a global phenomenon and the States is kind of catching on with it right now. So when you're looking at the current state of the gin affairs, it truly is wonderful to go back to a place like the UK where every single pub, restaurant, Indian bar, like restaurant, whatever, takeaway, pretty much everywhere has a gin menu with a gin and tonic selection. And they're all carrying like six different tonics in the fridge. And it's really wonderful to see that. How long have you been in the US now? God, it's got to be over five years. Five years. Yeah, over somewhere between five and six years. Before that, your, your career was, was in the UK? I started bartending um, in tiki bars, actually. Oh, really? Um, over in the UK. So I started off my whole flavor journeys with cocktails and everything in this crazy fun combination of flavors world. Then I moved to sort of the Michelin star system. Um, I worked underneath uh, Chef Simon Radley at the Grosvenor Hotel, um, where you know he kind of we took over a space called Odd Fellows and sort of revamped that. And it was a boutique hotel in Chester. It was beautiful, absolutely great. Um, and then from there moved to Aspen, Colorado, and I started working on Mountain Bars there and just had a good time. And slowly but surely took over a couple of places there um, and sort of helped run some programs and just sort of revamp and refresh some of their cocktail menus. And then Food and Wine magazine was opening a restaurant called Chef's Club by Food and Wine. Mm. And so I did the one in Aspen and then we did the one in New York as well. And it was, I was there for a couple of years. And so after that is when I moved over to Hendrix. What's, what's the tiki bar scene like in the UK? Best tiki bars in the world. Sorry, America. Uh, 100%, some of the best tiki scenes in the, in the world, truly. These guys are absolutely phenomenal. Some of my dearest friends work over there but it's such a wonderful vibe. They always compete, actually. I think it's at Miami Rum Fest. Mm. There's like the UK versus the US tiki teams. And it's quite funny to see the two go head to head, you know. Are, are they mostly in London or are they in a lot of the other cities too? You know, London is a wonderful amalgamation of different cultures. Mm. So it does, of course, have some of the best of the best. However, for me, I've always enjoyed traveling outside of London. So, I, you know, obviously I love going there for every now and then. But um, to really go and explore what the UK actually is you have to go to places like Manchester and Leeds and, and they all have bustling little little lives up there and I'm, it really is wonderful to see so the bar scenes in Manchester expanding hugely right now which is great and I'm going to be in Birmingham in a couple of months right? Birmingham is fantastic yeah I've got a good couple of recommendations for you I'll send you an oh, email but truly like you know the scenes are just blowing up right now and it's it's really wonderful to see that um, and you'll definitely see when you're in Birmingham, like the gin scene. Yeah. Just crazy. Places you never would have thought would have been gin drinkers and turning everything to it now. That's all they ever drink. Well, it's, it's, it's sort of in my mind, because the, the vision of, of Birmingham that I have is from watching Peaky Blinders. And, um, they, uh, and they had become the, the Shelby family in that, like in the last season, they became gin distillers. And so now it's, in go, my yeah. mind, in my fantasy world, it's come full circle. Mm -hmm. That's sort of... There you go. You'll see it. It's pretty much, yeah. yeah. A little different than Peaky Blinders, I'd say, nowadays. <laughs> Just know. a little different. You'll see what I mean. Let's uh, talk a little bit about uh, Orbium, what that's about. Um, and, you know, Hendrix hasn't had that many limited editions or yeah, lines. No, so, so I think it, tying it back into our original conversation of, or our earlier conversation of the trailblazing nature that Hendrix has mm. and Leslie Gracie created, she always said that she would never launch another gin unless it was something groundbreaking like Hendrix was. And so when it comes down to it, 
we've actually had a really big jump in development in the company by we launched a brand new gin palace distillery and it's about 300 feet away from our old one in Girvan, Scotland and it truly is spectacular it's one of the most beautiful distilleries I've ever had the pleasure of visiting and I have visited a lot of distilleries um, it's basically if you met Alice in Wonderland meets Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory and they all go down a different rabbit hole it's really wonderful and with the launch of the new distillery what that's done is given Leslie um, the creative capacity to innovate. So we actually built her a lab at the distillery where she can focus solely on Hendrix's development and R&D with sort of forward thinking projects. And as a thank you to the trade, the trade is sort of the people who made Hendrix what it was, you know, like all the top bartenders. Uh, we seeded it very slowly here in the US and they took it under their wing and sort of, you know, became a very sort of like a cult favorite. And, uh, and yeah, they, they made it soar. So now with Orbium, we sort of, as a thank you to them, Leslie decided she would make something else. So while we still use the 11 botanicals and the soloists of rose and cucumber in there, we're actually using three additional things. And we've got wormwood, quinine, and lotus blossom as mm. well. So I think I mentioned that Leslie likes to think of flavors in terms of shapes. Yeah. Hendrix has that really round, gorgeous flavor that sort of takes you on a bit of a journey. Orbium, with the three additional botanicals, each of them interact with those 11 botanicals in super interesting ways. So the lotus blossom will take a floral element and it'll really pull the, uh, the floral notes in a, such an interesting direction. And whereas the quinine and wormwood, both the bitter in their own aspects, you know, will then kind of like toy and mess around with things like the caraway and cubeb berries and all the other the angelica root in there. And you can really taste some of that in different ways but it, in its core it's still Hendrix which you can totally understand when you taste it so by then pulling all of the flavor in a different direction it kind of creates that orb shape or orbium and that's where the, the name comes yeah from. and uh, you know it really is a wonderful wonderful thing and to play around with it is great it's like using a completely different medium as a bartender you know because you can't really sub it out 100% for any gin cocktail which is great it's really fun to fun to play around with it well, the quinine is interesting because you're basically taking the tonic out of a gin and tonic, more or less. Because yeah. it's, I think gin and tonic is one of the oldest, you know, cultural fads with um, with gin. Obviously, it's one of the it goes back to the medicinal days of serving gin and tonics over in India with the, you know, trying to get rid of uh, suppress the effects of malaria, and so you'll often find though the modern palate, a lot of people say, I don't like gin. And then they try it in a cocktail and they're like, oh, I love that. What is it? And you say gin and they're so taken aback. And you find out that actually maybe people don't like tonic. But when you take out just the beautiful aspect of tonic, which is that bitterness, and you combine it with the genius of Leslie Gracie and a multitude of other botanicals, you get something that truly lends itself to being absolutely incredible. Yeah, no, it's funny that you mentioned that because my, my wife, um, she thought for the longest time, the entire time I've known her mostly, that she didn't like gin and then she realized she just didn't like tonic <laughs> and now go. she See, loves yeah. gin and just about everything and so it'd be really interesting to try something like this i actually prefer drinking this with maybe a little soda because you know tonic can actually sort of um exacerbate a little bit of that bitterness um and you know it's nice to actually drink something that's very long and refreshing sometimes yeah so i do this with a little bit of elderflower cordial squeeze a lemon sub with soda it's absolutely delicious you know we, we talked a little bit about the, the gin renaissance happening a huge way in europe it's finally making its way mm -hmm. to the u.s like what do you see as the 
in the next few years the prospects for gin in the U.S. Uh, could it possibly be playing in that same space that, that say, whiskey's playing in now? I 100%, I believe so. The difference, the major difference between what I see with the happening in the UK and the US is that the UK is a very small country. So largely the weather's the same. So if you have something that hits on as a cultural phenomenon, that is this modern gin movement where everybody's got six different types of tonic or soda in the fridge and all sorts, that can catch on pretty quickly in somewhere that all has pretty similar environments. But the US was such a big country that, you know, you obviously have places like this where we're sitting and it's 80 degrees outside in the middle of January or the blizzard that's happening in Chicago right now. So the, the environment, I think, does have a lot to play with it. But I am seeing people exploring it a lot more. You start to see the, the cocktail revolution happening first. And pretty much what cocktails are is a slightly more enhanced combination of flavors than a basic spirit mixer. And so people are starting to understand a little more about flavors. And I think, you know, in the going back even further with the gin to people's first experience, usually I hear, oh God, I can't stand gin. I had a sip out of my parents' closet when I was, you know what I mean? Yeah, like it's, yeah. you never, I think the true art of loving gin comes from understanding what gin really is. Yeah. And I think people are slowly but surely really starting to get that aspect of it, which I think is fantastic. And I think that's what's going to cause this sort of boom, you know, with the, with the increase in craft distilling movements. Everybody is sort of seeing a lot more about flavors and understanding a little more. And with that comes things like Hendrix, which they've known forever, but finally they might actually have a chance to understand it. And, and it's, it's interesting because, like we were saying, Hendrix kind of came along when a lot of what was on the market was the stuff that people, mm. you know, my own personal experience with gin when i first came of legal drinking age in the 90s um i was drinking a lot of gin and tonics with just really bad gins and mm -hmm. and and then i tried it straight and i was like oh this is nasty and i i think hendrix really played a role in changing the perception mm -hmm. of what gin is and now everything I, I think everything that's come since is really does owe a debt to hendrix because they really proved what um gin can be beyond just the, the traditional London dry that everyone was so familiar with. Yeah, and I think, you know, when it, of course, when you look back at when it was launched, there, you're right, there was only the major couple brands outside of that that were available, and each of them were very uh, traditional gin, London dry style gins in the sense of the words, like very juniper forward, evergreeny, piney, and that's what people were like kind of taken aback by. But then we actually used two different types of still in ours. So while most of the other brands will always use one of the following types, they'll use one that's either vapor infusion or one that's maceration with when infusing the botanicals. We use both of those. So it actually helps to give kind of that rounded flavor, but from every other. So everybody's always tried one or the other. And now they're trying something that's a combination of the two. And they're like, oh, whoa, that's crazy. So that's, that's what I find fascinating because it works so well across a whole spectrum of cocktails allows people that opportunity to access something new. Um, let's talk a little bit about, uh, I want to hear a bit about the Aspen drinking scene. I want to hear about the Austin drinking scenes. Like what, like what are some of the places you like to go? Um, where do people in the industry go? And you know, what are so just sort of the great types of places to go? There's so many different wonderful places across all of these different cities. And 
one of my favorite activities to do. Nobody knows the scene like the local people. Yeah. So I recently went on a random holiday, right? And I always go to the first place and I say, where would you go for a drink? And I think that's a wonderful way to kind of approach that. And especially yeah. places in Aspen and Austin, the, bartender, the bartenders in the industry there, they're pretty good family kind of scenes. You know, everybody's pretty close, especially in Aspen. In Aspen. Um, and I just moved to Austin and I've noticed there's a huge closeness there as well, which is kind of a beautiful similarity between the two. Um, so, you know, I think Aspen's a funny one because you can find everything from the rich of the rich and the best, you know, the most expensive yeah. things in the world with, you know, $100 million wine cellars and things all the way to your fantastic local dive bar. So I, I really, the Aspen is a, all within a four block radius, you have such infinite potential to go and experience a whole array of things. Um, Austin, a little more with the neighborhoods and everything, it's really fantastic to go and see that sort of grassroots approach to a lot of things. I feel like you can't get any business done in Austin if you don't have a Lone Star and something else with <laughs> and a shot of gin on the side. So it's a, it's a really wonderful culture to step into. And I'm excited to see the springtime in Texas here because the weather just seems like it's going to be fantastic to get outside and sort of hit some of those pl great places that you can go and eat and drink. So what's your favorite way to drink gin, drink Hendrix? I mean, how do you prefer to drink it? I'm a, I'm a martini drinker, um, personally. That's probably my go-to whenever I want to try a gin. Because I drink, I've drunk a lot of martinis over my time, yeah. I, I think that gives me a pretty good, not only impression of the gin, but also a connection with the bartender. I think, you know, the old thing where I like to prove how good a chef is, you kind of, you get a, you give them, what is it, to make an omelet, I think is the thing. And they say, make an omelet. And then the best chef in the world says, I can tell everything I need to know about a chef by how they make an omelet. Have you heard that? I haven't heard that. But one of the things I, I kind of similar to that is, is with um, with bars. I'm like, I'll see how they make an old fashioned and then I can right? decide how good of a bar it is. Yeah. So for me, the, for me, that's a martini in a way. You know, if you think about it, you have uh, an infinite array of gins nowadays to play with, which is all unique botanicals and things like that. And there's no... There isn't, you know, necessarily a given ratio for a martini across the board, you know? The old definition and the traditional spec, obviously, when you're going back, is the, you know, 50-50 gin to vermouth and two dashes of orange bitters, right? Now, that's a great martini. I, don't get me wrong. I love that style every now and then. It sounds like a lot of vermouth. I mean, that's going back to the one of the traditional specs, right? And then it's like, oh, well, is that the traditional spec? And everybody will argue about all these different things, you know? But I think it's quite funny because times change. The tr traditional spec a long time ago was made using completely different products than we have now. And so I can watch what a bartender, which gin they're gonna pick, what vermouth are they going to pair with that gin? What garnish are they gonna do and how does that complement it? How are they gonna stir it? What kind of ice are they? It's so one of those beautiful things to watch how a bartender makes a martini. And plus, you know, I, I think I find them fascinating for more of a, I guess, poetic, side of things you're looking at this beautiful clear concoction of something in front of you and then when you try it it's just a symphony of color comes out and it's really wonderful to experience that now as far as pushing the boundaries on gin and that sort of thing when does gin stop being gin what is your sort of opinion on that that is a very good question um i think with the with the expanse of the gin world at the minute and the amount of people that have realized, you know, I, I, my favorite question when somebody says, they're like, oh, I'm, I'm a gin ambassador or, oh, I've, you know, we're making a gin. I'm like, cool, how long is your whiskey aging for? 
because most people you find start to like make gin while their whiskey's aging. And I think then they realize they can actually just, they can make a lot of money off gin, right? And so to, uh, to sort of go through that and, and see the, the gin world expanding is just a, a wonderful thing. The fun part about it is, I guess in a way, the boundaries are a personal thing. I still like to kind of explore I love I love juniper. I think it's a fantastic thing, and I think you can't really go too far away from the cultural heritage of things before you lose the identity of something, mm -hmm. right? And I think you know if you look back again, Hendrix at one point broke the category and came out. So while gin was just a little tiny thing right here, Hendrix was way out here. But now other gins have broken it in further, and it's out here. So I guess it's all kind of like the limits are defined by the current times in a way. So they keep getting spread uh, bit by bit. And I'm excited to see where they can be pushed to, but I'm always cautious and understanding at least they should revolve around the central theme that is gin and the sort of the cultural ties back to that original styles. Do you believe that gin has terroir? I think there is more of a cultural heritage coming into gins. So in a way, I think it's the ground that they're built upon, yes, in that respect. But largely speaking, you're sourcing botanicals from all over the world anyway. So in, in essence, you're using things that come from the ground. You know, it's not quite like wine where the grapes are being grown specifically from that one chalky hillside or this limestone, you know, water filtered and everything like that. We're using a neutral grain spirit to then paint a beautiful can as sort of a blank canvas to paint a beautiful picture on. So in the traditional sense of the word terroir, if we're thinking about the wine world, possibly not so much. But I, I do think there is a, a larger conversation at hand of, the, I guess, the, the ground upon which they're built, in a way, if that makes sense. It does. Yeah. And somebody comes to you, uh, can't really tell one gym from the other, doesn't really even know what gin is, how do you describe Hendrix to them? I always say that Hendrix is just a little slice of the, un the unusual. And so when they try it, they first are greeted by, again, that gorgeous little piney, gorgeous little like sort of piney forest going through with the little citrus notes floating around there. And then of course you have right at the end, that gorgeous rose and cucumber. And I think our curious little signature of being infused with cucumber and rose, that's what sets Hendrix apart. I remember walking into a gin tasting once, there was 20, over 20, I think it was 25 gins sitting on the table. And obviously I was sort of like, I, I walked in and of course being me, I was a, I was a little late. And, uh, and they were like, well, pick out Hendrix. And I was like, oh my God, you know, because if, if you have to taste through 25 gins in a row, it's gonna wear your palate out pretty quick, but you know what? I tasted through them, and after about 15, I was like, nope, that's Hendrix, I know it already. And it's true, and it was right. So there is that 100% reminiscent, and for me, when you taste Hendrix, you sip it, and then after you leave it for just a couple seconds, it comes right back with that gorgeous, fresh rose and cucumber finish, and that's what sets Hendrix apart for me. So with a little slice of the unusual, a little bit of delving into a world of curious natures, I think that's, uh, that's kind of the way where Hendrix sits. And it's plug time, so tell me where to find 
Hendrix as well as you all over social media? Perfect. Well, you can go to hendrixgin.com to look at any of the kind of amazing cocktails that we've got coming out over the next sort of year and look at the new gin palace that we built over in Scotland uh, and find out more about Leslie Gracie as well. And for myself personally, you can follow me at, on Instagram at the bar poet. Now, excuse the American accent. Nobody gets it if I say the bar poet. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I think uh, so. You can follow me at the bar poet. Um, and I always love to kind of give people recommendations and suggestions too. I travel a lot. I have lists upon lists upon lists. And you know, in a in a in a message, I can send them all over. And if anybody's traveling or just has wants to know more about cocktails, you know, I get requests. I have some people in Adelaide in Australia who love to love to message me and be like, oh, what, where, what can we try this week? And it's always fun to give people a little, uh, you know, just a little helping hand in, in where to go next on their gin journey. Great. And uh, as for me, you can find me all the usual places at Jeff Cialetti on Twitter and Drinkable Globe on Instagram. And remember, the world is out there. Drink it up. The Drinkable.